Support for Jazzed About Work comes from Ohio University's online master's degree in sustainability, security, and resilience. Does your organization or community have a workable plan for when a catastrophe strikes? This 18-month online degree program will give you the skills you need to prepare for, respond to, and recover from natural disasters and other crises. Participants earn three stackable certificates in community risk and resilience, change management and leadership, and planning resilient systems leading to a full master's degree. Students learn cutting-edge skills in sustainability assessment and entrepreneurship, sustainable agriculture, energy policy, and more. This is an exciting growing field, and no GRE test is required to apply. For more information, follow the link in the description on this podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Jazzed About Work, where we talk about everything that might have an impact on your career. I'm your host, Bev Jones. I'm a career coach, and I wrote the book, Find Your Happy at Work. Our topic today is the National Climate Assessment and its possible impact on the job market. Our returning guest, Jeff DeBelco, is an expert. In fact, he's one of the many distinguished authors of the assessment. Jeff is an international thought leader on environmental issues. And in his day job, Jeff is a professor at Ohio University's Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Service, which, of course, is the sponsor of this podcast. Jeff will explain how the assessment summarizes the best available science on the risks and impacts of climate change, as well as on emerging responses and opportunities. He'll mention trends in the way some stakeholders are mitigating and adapting to extreme weather and trying many new things. And he'll talk about career opportunities and collaborations across disciplines that go way beyond efforts to provide clean energy activities. Jeff, today we're going to be talking about the fifth National Climate Assessment, sometimes known as NCA5. And we'll talk about how the findings might impact the future workforce. But first, I'm always interested in what you're up to. So welcome back to Jazzed About Work and and tell us, what have you been working on lately, including with um, the age-friendly communities and and how uh, climate change and um, aging might be converging? Well, thank you, Bev. I really appreciate this opportunity. And thanks for the question about what we're calling a, a gray-green alliance to bring together the the twin trends of aging and warming. And it is um, an area that is um, growing in attention. And it's certainly been one that we've spent a lot of time um, trying to better understand the threats, but also the opportunities. So what's new is the um, at kind of at different levels, action at different levels. Here in Ohio, we are actively kind of sharing lessons learned and learning together from 
um, what is a, a network of Ohio's age-friendly communities. So it's a it's a age-friendly is a World Health Organization and American Association of Retired Persons kind of approach to making communities uh, more livable for older adults. Although they say it makes it more livable for everyone, and so we're doing that learning from um, kind of different ways that folks from around the state are are kind of taking these twin trends together. Um, we're doing it in a way that tries to really explicitly learn some lessons of the similarities, but also the differences between urban settings and rural settings. So our partnership with the Age-Friendly Innovation Center in Columbus and Ohio State allows us to understand that urban setting and what they are doing there and seeing there as, and compare that with what we are uh, doing here in, in rural Appalachia at Ohio University and age-friendly Athens County. And then we're also uh, engaging in the national and international stage, understanding how these issues are playing out and particularly looking for innovative ways that people are putting these things together. So that's contributing to um, a, a uh, uh, research literature um, with with some new publications that are aimed at AARP and WHO to suggest pathways for bringing age-friendly and climate-resilient communities together. And then we're learning from other parts of, of the country and the world. So, for example, AARP California has a really innovative Power Your Savings initiative that's providing practical information to older adults about the economic and health benefits of uh, electrification of appliances and vehicles. And so this, um, this way into uh, a kind of a complex and somewhat diffuse and diverse topic of aging and climate can become very practical in terms of what individuals at a household level can do to um, try to capture some savings and achieve some health benefits by taking steps that take into account both of those trends. So you always have your fingers in whatever is the most recent and pressing related to climate issues. I um, am not surprised, therefore, that you uh, um, are not just focusing on the Gray-Green Alliance. You're doing many things, as usual. But the most recent intriguing thing is you are one of the authors of the um, Fifth National Climate Assessment. What does that mean? Tell us about this massive report and collection of science and how were all of these put together and 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 where did the idea of a national assessment begin? Well, it is a big undertaking, one that the Congress mandated back in 1990 needed to happen every four or five years, that an assessment um, be done of climate impacts and actions in the United States or and connected to the United States. And so what that means is with kind of 500 authors, many from within government, but also importantly, from outside government, and that's where, where the role that I played, uh, contributing across 32 chapters that have um, a geographic focus, 10 different areas of the U.S. are kind of broken down so that we have a, a more detailed and nuanced understanding of what uh, climate impacts and actions are in those areas, and also cross-cutting. It's based on a notion that we really need to have up-to-date assessments of both the science and the responses to climate um, today, but also importantly in the future, because 
our habit of looking to the past to understand and predict what's happening in the future may not serve us uh, as well in this kind of warming world and less uh, certain, more variable uh, future. And so it's key to have that um, up to date and and thoroughly vetted and reviewed um, found information foundation to inform decision making. It, it complements international assessments that are critical, but they don't those international assessments don't have the downsizing focus on the different parts of the country uh, and not um, looking through the U.S. lens. And so that's what the report aims to do with 14 different government agencies and multiple rounds of public input and review and a National Academy of Sciences review. So a multi-year process with lots of, of, with lots of expertise being brought to bear. I know that the assessment is massive. I've I've sort of looked at parts of it, but just didn't get through all the summaries. So much is going on. And I know that it's not easy to say, here's the bottom line. This is where right. we are. But what does the assessment say about the bottom line? Where are we? And what does the future look like? It, it is a it is a really big uh, and rich report, but I think there are some key takeaways, some key messages. Uh, first, that climate change is impacting all parts of the United States now and will increasingly do so in the future. So there are uh, differential impacts in different ways in different places, but all parts of the U.S. are impacted by these changes. Um, and in fact, the the risks. Uh, from these changes uh, are growing and they play out in a variety of ways. Um, one thing that's new about this report than previous ones is that there was great attention and, and better understanding of how climate change exacerbates social inequality. So it plays into and impacts existing lines of inequality and injustice. It doesn't impact everyone equally and certainly the ability to respond uh, to climate impacts is not distributed equally. So it poses a key justice issue and plays into those lines of dialogue, debate, and action um, that are ongoing and um, connected. That the U.S. at multiple levels, public and private, um, are responding uh, to climate change. There, there, there are lots of responses going on. On the one level, it's unprecedented in terms of the attention, the resources, the level of effort. And it, on at the same time, it, it's um, uh, pretty clear that the um, amount of effort, the amount of resources, the rate of change is not sufficient to achieve the stated goals that we have for reducing greenhouse gases emissions, uh, mitigating climate, adapting to the impacts that we're seeing today and know will happen um, um, in the in the future because of the warming that's already occurring and kind of built into the emission profiles and then um, building those resilient systems. So even with the degree of uncertainty as how they're going to play out, we're, we're building both kind of hard infrastructure systems and our social institutional systems that are flexible and resilient in the face of this change. So we have a lot of work to do. Um, and then finally, while there is 
quite understandably, a lot of focus on the increased risks, that there are opportunities in multiple sectors for um, responding in ways that helps us um, uh, adapt and move forward in, in build out a resilient economy and, and take the take the steps that we both need to take, but also want to take to be competitive and safe and healthy uh, going forward. There's so much going on, but uh, this is a podcast focused particularly on career. So I'm, of course, always interested in that. Years ago, when we started talking about climate change here, uh, we focused particularly on clean energy jobs and the new uh, energy technologies, but now it feels like the um, career impacts could be much broader, that all kinds of organizations are going to be managing risks and planning for the future and um, changing the way they do things. It feels like this could have a massive impact on where the job opportunities are. Does, does it feel like that to you? It does. And that comes through in different parts of the report. So I think for those interested in uh, what it means for jobs in a variety of different ways, um, the report is rich from uh, in the in the geographic sections because it is uh, a different job profile in different geographies uh, in um, the economics and the health and the kind of it appears at a lot of places these considerations around jobs certainly at where you started there the expected in the what does it mean for jobs in the energy sector if we have um, in 2021 the report indicates that we have nearly eight million Americans working in in, in energy-related jobs, um, about uh, uh, of those, about forty-one percent are connected to what you would call net-zero emissions-aligned areas, uh, or in, in kind of easier to understand language, uh, jobs that are connected to making these transitions to move away from the the energy systems and and the fossil fuel approach that's creating and contributing to the climate change problem and moving to ones that have um, that lower those emissions and move them to, to net zero. Um, those jobs uh, in some ways are in some of the same places, right? So Texas and um, the Dakotas are producing fossil fuels, but they're also centers of renewable energy uh, generation as well. In other ways, it'll be different geographies for some of those jobs. And so the increase in wind power in Vermont will make it energy jobs in ways that haven't been there previously with, with the fossil fuel industry. Um, I, I think it will also create new jobs in related manufacturing deployment as we we kind of invest in and we see big public investments and private investments in, in generating um, and innovating in the kind of technology that are connected. That will mean reduced jobs in the fossil fuel related areas. There have been a lot of analysis. Is it, a, is it a net gain or loss moving from one to the other? There's a lot of sense that it's relatively similar, although it will be different jobs in different places. Um, and so that's the energy sector, but it really important some other insights. One, uh, absolutely, it'll be changes for all jobs because climate impacts all sectors and all man manner of jobs. Those in the workforce 
kind of no matter where they sit and what they're pursuing, those who understand the connections and the implications of a warmer world will be those who can work better and succeed under those changed conditions. So public decision makers in health or emergency response or infrastructure, education, those who can uh, bring in an understanding and and kind of translate into what that means in terms of threat and opportunity into their training, into their work portfolios, into their decision-making, be the ones who are making uh, better and more resilient decisions. But finally, another kind of dimension that became very clear in the science that was assessed and um, the data that were analyzed is that um, it will, there'll be some really important changes in things like workplace safety and what jobs are possible and, and, and kind of in some ways a productivity and efficiency. So, for example, there's a lot of concern about higher temperatures and higher temperatures for more periods, more days of the year and what those higher temperatures mean for people whose jobs have them working outside. And so the ability to work as much and when they have previously in construction, in agriculture, those are going to be changed in terms of the what temperatures mean for the ability to work outside in places that are experiencing um, uh, high heat events and more sustained heat events. And that will really change um, uh, prices of some of the the housing and the food that we eat, uh, but also really expose those workers to uh, a different workplace safety environment that's critical to uh, consider, understand, and um, to to make changes to keep our workers safe. So everybody will be, I think, examining what they're doing and how they're doing it, kind of like it happened during COVID. So quickly and unexpectedly, all of a sudden, remote work became a, a different kind of thing and, and questions about the responsibility of employers during difficult times were raised. And the same kind of churn, it feels like, um, is already starting related to climate. And there are going to be opportunities in there. One of the things that um, I'm kind of interested in, maybe you can shed some light on it, it for us is the White House, when it released NCA5, it, it announced a $6 billion program through the bipartisan infrastructure law, I think, to help communities become more resilient to impacts of client change. And now a lot of that is related to the electric grid, but what is that money going to do? Do you have a sense of it? And how is that going to be shared among communities? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so the that investment, as well as the larger investments with the bipartisan uh, or with the infrastructure uh, law and the Inflation Reduction Act, those resources, in many ways, are going to uh, help build out uh, the infrastructure that's needed to make this transition and be competitive in the economic space and innovate in manufacturing to produce those um, technologies that are utilizing and and generating energy in a different way. Those are um, easily kind of framed and understood in big picture ways. But as you suggest, these resources often have to 
build things and create partnerships and collaboration at very local um, and state levels in the public and the private sector. Um, and, and what that means is some really practical stuff in terms of just like um, in the 50s, we built the, the national highway system. Uh, we need to, with this kind of different set of realities, revisit our infrastructure around energy and make investments that have very local manifestations but are connected to state and national. And so there, um, the grid is a hugely important one. It's, um, it is necessary to start generating more power with renewable energy, but like um, uh, like the fossil fuels, same with renewable energy, that energy is not necessarily generated and produced where it is being used. And so you have to move it. And so that yeah. is building out the infrastructure that connects to those um, new locations or changed locations or changed um, technologies in ways that help uh, 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 serve us um, where the energy is is needed and consumed. And so um, it has a big picture element to it, but it has some very local practical um, uh, kind of down at the county zoning level and um, and and building a, a hard infrastructure is is what needs to happen. I, I think that the kind of collaborations that are already emerging and I think will spread are going to be really interesting. It's like everybody, um, is going to be impacted, and many kinds of organizations are going to have a chance to be part of the dialogue. And, and that's kind of what's happening with your Gray-Green Alliance, isn't it? That that um, the, the bottom line is in the communities, but it takes a long time to get to that point with uh, money being raised from the government, from uh, investors, with regulatory changes being required, with... Uh, people having to get together and find their common interest. And that, that can be a good thing. That can be kind of an interesting opportunity for addressing a bunch of issues along the way, can't it? Yes, absolutely. And I think in this way, the, the Gray-Green Alliance approach in many ways is to facilitate discussions and dialogue and action between two communities that are pursuing really important agendas. How do we make our communities better for older adults? And how do we build resilient and, and climate resilient communities and take sustainability into action? And for the longest time, I wrongly assumed that those were two different worlds and two different agendas and two different sandboxes. But I've come to learn by partnering with social workers and gerontologists uh, that, in fact, we're focused on many of the same things. And so with these investments, we need to invest in ways that are mindful of what the needs are of older adults from the kind of climate resilient side. And that for those uh, on those focused on older adults, they need to understand that these are new realities posed by a warmer world. And so it is the same areas that um, these actions need to take place. Both communities are focused on infrastructure, on transportation, on housing, on health, on social connectivity. Um, and, and so doing that in conjunction is enabling us to see some synergies and some opportunities to um, uh, 
try to work together to achieve those shared goals as opposed to um, kind of seeing limited, important, but kind of limited points of interface. High heat is bad for older adults, right? And that's an area that's very well established in public health and we're taking steps and need to take more steps to address. Um, but goes far beyond that when we start talking about these shared areas that we're focusing on and how we can bring these worlds together and capture some of the opportunities, even as we're trying to face down the the, challenge, the new challenges posed by an aging and warming world. Well, speaking of bringing worlds together, that brings us to um, the international scope of everything related to climate trends. And you, of course, were uh, one of the authors of the chapter on international interest. Now, this is a national assessment, but it feels like what the assessment does is recognize that global climate change uh, change trends are impacting um, the United States in a lot of ways. And one of the ones that comes to mind is our economy. Um, trade and investment interest and things like that are going to be impacted by what's happening around the world. And that's going to impact our ability to have the resources and uh, to work with partners who are able to reach their resources. What is the um, kind of the bottom line on um, how we are able to interface with, with um, global activities? What what does the um, assessment suggest about how uh, we need to be mindful of what's going around around the whole globe? Yeah, so the international chapter finds that in order to uh, understand and respond to climate change in the United States, we must understand and respond to and be part of the um climate impacts and actions overseas. And so what happens overseas in terms of climate impacts and actions don't stay overseas. They have direct impacts for the United States, both as risks and as opportunities. And so it is essential that the National Climate Assessment has a focused uh, look at different parts of the United States. It's also essential that the National Climate Assessment looks overseas to understand how our actions overseas, as well as those um, uh, of other countries and other regions, I impact the U.S. And so that's a kind of a fundamental takeaway that um, uh, is intuitive, but is um, unfortunately all too often forgotten when we're making out priorities and allocating resources. Um, you're absolutely right that the impacts for trade. Um, and investment, economic innovation, certainly competition that are so critical to our domestic economy, domestic job futures, um, are highly dependent on, for example, supply chain. So in the, in the ramp up of renewable energy technologies, uh, electric vehicles, those technologies are highly dependent on mine minerals and metals and the processing of them. There are quite a few that are essential for those technologies where those um, mine minerals and metals uh, are from overseas and many of them from China, economic competitor. And so the geopolitical and geoeconomic dimensions of the supply chain for these critical investments in new technologies critical for our economy 
Uh, and our climate response is something that is inherently international. Uh, certainly impacts uh, we found for the security of the United States and where security is defined narrowly in more traditional terms, but also more broadly defined in, in wider human security terms, that there are a range of areas where those links are, are intertwined and, and connected. And then larger out of what we put under a basket of uh, uh, sustainability and sustainable development, addressing health and well-being abroad and what that means uh, for us and the kind of interdependencies that come uh, from livelihoods and health and uh, economic interdependence, the food, food and food security. These are, are issues that um, really we must uh, track understand the impacts and be engaged in the responses and understand that the responses of others have direct impacts on us. How are universities, um, academic areas, uh, addressing the convergence of so many issues around climate? I'm, I'm kind of thinking of traditional uh, colleges at a, at a big university, traditional uh, lines of work like government and um, business and economics and things like that, there these disciplines uh, are converging in some ways as well, it feels. Are, are there opportunities now for students who are thinking about going to college or maybe doing master's degrees uh, years after their first um, college degree? Are there opportunities for multidimensional pr- academic programs now to help people figure out how they can put the pieces together in the context of their own career activity? Um, there are, fortunately, and those opportunities are growing. I would um, hasten to say that it, it is um, still a challenging environment if we do an overall assessment. There, there's lots of really interesting work in the various disciplines, right? This is an issue that involves all the disciplines, the physical and natural sciences, the social sciences, engineering, the humanities. And so often universities are not organized uh, in ways that make it easy for these different disciplines, departments, um, ways of knowing toolboxes to work together. But that is changing in part because the problem set demands it and the um, the the kind of big issues of the day require a team-based approach to understand and to respond. And so that, for example, is really at the heart of what we're trying to do at the Voinovich School with our uh, Masters of Sustainability, Security, and Resilience. It's explicitly recognizing that one has to have an interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary approach to it, that 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 degree and set of certificates is not designed for just folks who want to come and say, I want to do climate, but for, for people, no matter where they sit, to build that understanding of what these changing dimensions around climate change and sustainability mean for their portfolio, how they can be better at doing what they do by having this greater understanding, building bridges to other sectors, other departments, other disciplines, in ways that um, really kind of tackle the problems as they are, because um, the the real challenges of the day, such as climate change, don't um, uh, neatly align with um, kind of a 14th, 15th century 
set of disciplines in different silos. It really requires that we break those down. And so I think there are examples and increasing examples of universities offering those opportunities to come together. Uh, It it still can present some kind of institutional hurdles, uh, but there there are plenty of examples where we're overcoming that. And that's in part when it's driven by um, the realities of the big questions of the day. Well, I think that the assessment uh, can spark a lot of conversation about the big issues of the day. I, Frankly, I thought the parts of the summary that I read, the, the White House statements, uh, some of the surrounding uh, podcasts and activity are pretty accessible. They're um, I am no scientist, but I thought I can understand what they're talking about here. It, it feels like a lot of the materials are really very uh, reader or listener friendly. And so I, I do think this is a, this massive body of work is something that is going to be of interest to people from lots of disciplines and not just scientists and not just academics, anybody who's interested in the um, job market or the economic opportunities in, in our country might be interested. Are there any audiences in particular who might not recognize that this is going to have impact on them, but might want to uh, take a look at the assessment? Any, any kind of audiences come to mind to you as, as um, audiences who have something to benefit by looking at the assessment? Yes, absolutely. And I, I will say at, at the top, Bev, I'm very pleased to hear that you found it accessible and, and usable. The the organizers and the, the lead editors and authors of this report said on day one to all the author teams, this is not a science report for scientists. This is a report that needs to be free of jargon, needs to be accessible because we want different audiences and constituents and stakeholders to use the information, to understand it and to apply it and to use it in a wide variety of settings. And so that was very explicitly the purpose. Um, and we had we had multiple rounds of government and public review in order to try to make that the case. Um, so yes, there are definitely some audiences. I think uh, in addition to the federal level, which we often default to, the local and state public decision makers, we have 10 different chapters on different regions of the United States. So we're breaking it into areas that where like and like can be compared and understood to downsize it from what is so commonly the case of global average temperature change or these, these data figures and measures that don't connect to specific places. We also have the one, as we discussed, that talks about how those international climate impacts affect the U.S., right? So different regional takes as well as how um, um, actions outside our geographies impact us here at home. Um, Private profit and nonprofit. Uh, Those audiences, I think, this report will hopefully provide a critical foundation for those working in the health sector, food, agriculture, energy, technology, trade, investment, housing, transport. And we have chapters for all those. So you can go into those by sector, go into those by geography, and really have a up-to-date understanding of what impacts are, what responses are, and what we expect to see in the future. And that cross-cutting analysis 
I, I, I believe will be um, incredibly valuable to them um, in day-to-day and long-term strategic planning. And then um, uh, in education, as we just talked about from the university perspective, I, I, I'm sure you know that expression that you want to you want to, when you're playing hockey, you want to pass the puck to where the hockey player will be, not where they are now, right? And so the same goes for education. We need to train our workforce, our next generation, um, uh, with the kind of the knowledge and the skills about the world they will be living in, not the one of the past. And so in that sense, it is a different um set of topics or integration and and merge and kind of interconnections of those topics and those skill sets and those disciplines. And so that's, um, uh, you know, reflective of the kind of new world, so to speak, that we're in that's changing every day, some predictable ways and some less predictable ways. And climate is a big part of that. And so um, while we are realizing it, we're uh, maybe slower than we need to and responding to it, but slower than we need to. Uh, and, and so for those of us who are engaged in the endeavor of, of assisting and learning together with students of all stripes, um, then uh, I think that is a, a, a critical resource. And I know I am putting it to work in my classroom uh, next semester straight away uh, uh, for exactly those purposes. And speaking of readability and how this is not your uh, typical government or scientific, dense, confusing um, report, this report includes art. There is an arts component even of this amazing, uh, far-reaching assessment, which I I thought was um, such a beautiful touch. So I will put the uh, uh, link to the assessment summary uh, in the podcast notes. And I, I do urge people to take a look at it and, and they may find some surprising opportunities or insights or inspiration in this government report involving many people from many places. Um, it's, it's a special kind of document. Thank you for your service, Jeff. I know it's people like you who are kind of going beyond the narrow um, description of their of their day jobs and and participating internationally and regionally and in their communities to explore these issues. There, there's so many people kind of uh, being involved in big ways in in the climate response and in this report. So I'm um, I, I I appreciate so much good effort went into it and thank you for being part of it and thank you for being here today. Well, it, it's an honor to have participated in that report, and it's an honor, as always, to, to, to be in dialogue with you, Bev. Thank you so much. All right, let's talk again soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Today we've been talking with Professor Jeff DeBelco about the Fifth National Climate Assessment. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Beverly Jones, author of Find Your Happy at Work. And our sponsor is the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Service at Ohio University. Today's tip is that whatever your career, 
Your job will be more rewarding if you find ways to align the work you do with the issues and values you really care about. Thanks for listening to Jazzed About Work, and if you enjoy our show, please come back soon. Thank you.